The Missing Witches Project is entirely listener supported and listener, we want you to join us. Do you want to be part of a community that helps make public research into marginalized ideas? Do you want to join in interviews with all these magical people and meet other anti-racist, trans-inclusive, neuroqueer, feminist practitioners of different kinds from all over the world in our monthly circles? Or are you maybe just down to send a little money magic towards these stories and ideas and the causes we support? Anyway, either way, check out missingwitches.com to learn more about us. And please know, we've been missing you. And one last thing before we start. The stories we tell require a general content warning. It's just a fact of this terrain of interrogating what is missing. We promise to hold those moments with care. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. This episode is about Octavia E. Butler. Prophet. World builder. Door opener. Progenitor of the magic that is Afrofuturism. Novelist. Writer of books that make portals what Adrian Marie Brown calls visionary fiction, writing that visions the future, that opens it with new possibility or that offers a terrifying warning and so pushes the mind to face dark truths and oppose the vision of the possible they present. Resist horror futures in the present by having them in our sights. Someone who thought through the way witch hunts happen and what makes someone different enough to be powerful or a target. In Wild Seed, her shape-shifting ancient narrator learned quickly that it was not good to be too different. Great differences caused envy, suspicion, fear, charges of witchcraft. She told us about these times, our times, decades ago. Literally in her 1990s Earthseed novels, a president of the United States under the Make America Great Again banner in the name of Christianity, uses language from the witch hunts to call forth a rabid fear in his followers. Fear rooted in the deep iniquity and plagues and planet sickness and power distortions of their world. Fear that the leader turns toward scapegoats, vulnerable people, and the Bible-thumping president keeps himself arm's length from the gangs that form in his name. And a spark once lit rages. Earthseed is both the name of the series and it's the name of the philosophy that diverges from Christianity in that world. It's a religion of noticing, channeled and created by a young black girl. Earthseed says, when a parent's stability disintegrates, as it must, God is change. People tend to give in to fear and depression, to need and greed. When no influence is strong enough to unify people, they divide. They struggle, one against one, group against group, for survival, position, power. Gangs with machine guns take kids from their parents. High on their power and righteousness, they rape and brutalize and bully people. In interview, Octavia said, You have to think about what kind of world you want to live in, and I don't think there's a person alive who would want to live in the world that I've written about. But we can arrange it. The problems that I write about are problems that we can do something about. That's why I write about them. 
Earthseed takes place in the 2020s, and as I read it, this fictional world and real moment collide. Gangs with automatic assault rifles show up to intimidate people playing bingo. People dressed up joyfully reading books to kids. They attack people who are queer, who are Unitarian, who are Black, who believe they are seeds, who bury their dead with the trees and visit them there. Earthseed says, create no images of God, except the images that God has provided. They are everywhere, in everything. God is change. God is change. Seed to tree, tree to forest, rain to river, river to sea, grubs to bees, bees to swarm, from one, many, from many, one, forever uniting, growing, dissolving, forever changing. The universe is God's self-portrait. Octavia is a prophet in these books, predicting the worst of the world we live in. And she is channeling a prophet's voice and vision in the character of Olamina, the scribe and narrator and changemaker of Earthseed. Octavia inhabits these very different women's voices and worlds, Anyanwu in Wildseed and Lilith in Lilith's Brood, but always remains a mother of ideas and stories and a fearsome protector of children and a visionary witch. Witch as in one who sees cause and effect quickly and at a distance, maybe, to paraphrase artist Remedios Faro. Across her novels, these Black women narrators are watching the things they foretold come to pass and noticing how the right words change the outcomes. She believed in and demonstrated the truth that any of what she called a positive obsession, including writing, can shape change. From childhood, Octavia took the bus almost every day to write in the Los Angeles public libraries. And surrounded by those book portals, she was sustained in her belief in her own power. And so she called forth new worlds there in her journal, in the library. In a journal entry she wrote before the final book of the Lilith Sprood series, Imago, was published, a series that bowled me over with its astonishing humanism and frankness, weaving utterly new human-alien relationships and commingled post-apocalyptic futures, and also, like, finds a sidelong way to offer perspective into the psychology of enslavement, to trace that experience in all its unfolding repercussions and complexity and subtlety. Anyway, in a journal entry she wrote at that time, she wrote, I shall be a best-selling writer. After Imago, each of my books will be on the bestseller lists of L-A-T-N-Y-T-P-W-W-P, etc. My novels will go on to the above lists whether publishers push them hard or not. Whether I'm paid a high advance or not, whether I ever win another award or not, this is my life. I write best-selling novels. My novels go on to the bestseller lists on or shortly after publication. My novels each travel up to the top of the bestseller lists, and they reach the top, and they stay on top for months. At least two, she writes. Each of my novels does this. So be it. See to it. I will find the way to do this. So be it. See to it. She continues in smaller handwriting, like she's trying to get it all on the same page. My books will be read by millions of people. 
I will buy a beautiful home in an excellent neighborhood. I will send poor black youngsters to Clarion or other writers' workshops. I will help poor black youngsters broaden their horizons. I will help poor black youngsters go to college. I will get the best of healthcare for my mother and myself. I will hire a car whenever I want. I will travel whenever and wherever in the world that I choose. My books will be read by millions of people. So be it. See to it. I think this is a masterclass in vibrant word magic. But honestly, the writer in the library conjuring her future was enough for me to love her, to want to read everything she wrote, and to try to talk about her here. Because that's all we want to do here at Missing Witches, folks, is delve into the lives, art, and ideas of people who are calling out to us, all kinds of folks, especially women and queer people, who we sense with a kind of electrical pulse can teach us about the magic in their crafts and lives and in the universe. As Gabrielle Weiss said of his mother, Leonore Carrington, in last week's episodes, she was not a witch, but the idea of witch that she went looking for opened doors in herself. And that door opening was a witchcraft she was constantly practicing. This is where we want to play. An idea of witchcraft that opens doors in ourselves through the psyche to right the world. We follow these real women and queer people because we believe they are progenitors for ideas and stories and art that opens doors to futures we want to believe in, live in, conjure forth. And sometimes that happens by showing us the darkest doors and the people who can meet us there and be lights of hope for us even there. Because in the darkest of times in the past, they were there too. And in meeting them, we can root them deep in ourselves. And to meet them and survive, we need to seek and cherish each other. That's the portal we go through. Earthseed says, embrace diversity, unite or be divided, robbed, ruled, killed by those who see you as prey. Embrace diversity or be destroyed. Octavia wrote more than a dozen books, along with dozens of essays and short stories. She was the first black woman to receive the highest honors in the science fiction and fantasy genres. And she was the first ever science fiction writer to win a MacArthur Genius Grant. She was prolific from the 70s up until her untimely death in 2006. She died from a fall following mounting hypertension a disease that takes its roots in the body under the extreme pressure of stress and that disproportionately kills black women. As fiercely brilliant and strong as she was, she was sick with the sickness of our time. Legacies of slavery and racism and sexism, ableism, heteronormativity, weighing on her hardworking heart and nervous system, tapped in as it was to all the feelings of the world visionary that she was. I hope the energy that she is and was felt or feels the wave coming, the millions of readers, the mind slipping through portals she left with her steady crafting. She made it to the New York Times bestseller list for the first time in 2020. She was published by the Library of America in 2021. In Octavia, I found a new favorite all-time novelist, I wish I'd read her in school. I love all these fucking books. 
kindred, earth seed, wild seed, Lilith's brood. These have been my night worlds recently. And though there is so much darkness and violence and terrifying pasts and futures in them, I've still felt held by a stable presence at the heart of them. In everyone I've read, there is a narrator who is honest in their fears, sorrows, and complicated joy, who is brave and strong even when brokenhearted, who is fierce in their love and protection of children. There is this Black woman in every story who, even in my COVID trauma stance, jumpy from the news, protective of my exhausted brain, I trust to take me all the way through the worst of the world. Sometimes these narrators feel like Octavia herself, like Olamina in Earthseed, tall, plain, channeling a positive obsession with telling the truths she sees. Prophetic. But other times I imagine, I feel this meta-narrator, this person whose spirit guides these books and holds us in their love and honesty, is Octavia's mother. Emma Rothberg wrote, Emma Rothberg wrote, Octavia Estelle Butler was born in Pasadena, California in 1947. She grew up poor, very poor, in a city that, while not segregated legally, was segregated in fact. Her father, who worked as a shoeshiner, died when she was seven, and Butler was raised by her mother, who worked as a maid, and her grandmother. Butler remembered accompanying her mother to work at wealthy homes in Pasadena and having to enter through the back door. Her mother, who only had three years of formal schooling, worked incredibly hard to make sure Butler had more opportunities and a better education than she had. Parenting, in its countless variations, is concrete, world-changing magic. Daily, hourly, we create and negotiate the world for and with these young stars, all brilliance and funny ideas and tenderness and total chaos. Distant parent figures might be a source of human narratives and complexes about distant sky gods. But parents who gave everything of themselves, transmuted all their own pain, not only to provide but to cherish and educate, they make the future better for all the threads and connections in the web of life that spool outward from that child, which is to say, for all of life. Everywhere, they are among the gods of world-making change. Octavia writes about parenting in a way that shows she knew this in her bones. This unpaid labor that is invisible to so many, maybe because it's so close to us, is a site of epic transformational power. Tiny gestures here raise the world. Rothberg again. Butler attended Pasadena public schools where, as a shy and frequently lonely student who struggled with dyslexia, she felt left behind. Her teachers interpreted her slower reading as an unwillingness to do the work rather than a sign of her struggles with dyslexia. When she was given books to read in school, she found them boring and unrelatable, and she begged her mother for a library card. She recalled her mother looked surprised and happy. She immediately took me to the library and got me a card. From then on, the library was my second home.
Butler graduated from Pasadena City College with an associate's degree in 1968 and continued taking classes. At California State and at UCLA, she took writing classes, but she also studied anthropology, physics, psychology, geology, among other subjects. She loved learning and recalled, you're always realizing there's so much out there that you don't know. Octavia's mother got her a library card and believed in her power to find and then create better stories than the ones she'd been given. Octavia once wrote, I taste books, taste knowledge, and for that matter, taste life experiences as some people taste wine or food. And maybe she means that, like Anyanwu in Wild Seed, that she tastes books like Anyanwu tastes other animals or medicines or people even and then can see how they work and transform a part of herself with that new knowledge. Or maybe she had synesthesia and she literally tasted new flavors as she read. Anyway, across her novels, Octavia considers how we taste knowledge, cross our senses over, pour into other lives and fears and feelings. The alien Uncali in Lilith's brood, including Lilith's own mixed-race child, also taste knowledge with their tongues and look for ideas to enact their trades that send them evolving forward across space-time. Octavia is writing invitations. On the one hand, for us to travel through stories in order to embody another, and on the other, making clear the brutal power imbalances that can exist in all these transactions. Gabrielle Bello wrote, Butler was accustomed to the weight of others' bigotries. She grew up with insecurities about her body, some of which stayed with her into adulthood. Her body was large. She was six feet tall by the time she was a teen, and her voice was deeper than that of the girls around her, its gentle rumbling tone and pitch varying from androgynous to masculine, and students teased her mercilessly. Some of them called her a boy, others a lesbian. Butler did not identify as gay as she told Larry McCaffrey and Jim McMenamin in 1998. But she ruminated about her sexuality and sense of gender, at times musing that she might indeed be what others called her, and even twice going to a gay and lesbian services center to talk about such things, at which point I realized, nope, this ain't it. I'm a hermit. I like this. I identify as hermit sometimes. Like Hannah Gadsby, I identify as tired. Octavia never, in her private papers or correspondence or anywhere else, expressed that she was lesbian, despite that title being applied to her in major publications after her sudden death at age 58. Dr. Sammy Schalk wrote, People read Butler as lesbian, queer, because she was tall, dark-skinned, deep-voiced woman who valued her writing more than romantic relationships. I appreciate that folks want to claim her. We love her. Hell, if I could find a way to claim she was my distant cousin, I would. But when we call Butler a lesbian, we erase her identity as a masculine of center black woman. We collapse gender expression and sexuality. We allow the absence of public relationships with men to signal lesbianism rather than asexuality or another term that wasn't available to her. Octavia exceeds simple categories. If we tell the truth about her, we are required to trace outside margins, to expand, to gather, and include. Gabrielle Bello continues, When I first heard Butler speak, I was surprised for a moment by her androgynous voice. 
then fell in love with that bashful, articulate figure. How we naturally sound should not matter, but it always cruelly does. As a trans girl, I knew, still know, what it felt like to be nervous every time I opened my mouth to speak, lest the sound not match my appearance, as hormone therapy does not affect our voices after puberty. Knew what it was like to practice before making every phone call after coming out as trans, to record myself each day to see if I sounded passable, to prepare to be told, sorry, sir, may I speak to Gabrielle, to be asked to prove my gender in a hospital in Tallahassee, to be afraid each time I opened my mouth in public that someone would frown or flee or flip out. The clip of Butler I'd seen was from 2002, nearly two decades past, yet I felt I was right there with her for a moment, admiring her and hearing the midnight music all at once. Octavia said, I'm black, I'm solitary, I've always been an outsider. Maybe these days she'd embrace the idea of neuroqueer, as a dyslexic Black woman, I can imagine the generative possibilities of that space, as defined by Nick Walker, Athena Lynn Michaels Dillon, and Remy Yergo, might be appealing to a world builder like herself. Or maybe not, but this part of their definition of what it means to neuroqueer sounds like it has space to embrace Octavia's writing. To neuroqueer, the verb, as in Engaging in practices intended to undo and subvert one's own cultural conditioning and one's ingrained habits of neuronormative and heteronormative performance, with the aim of reclaiming one's capacity to give more full expression to one's uniquely weird potentials and inclinations. Octavia's characters and questions, their family shapes and philosophies, subvert cultural conditioning, and give expression to uniquely weird potentials. Octavia was a door opener, not just with her stories, but with the steady bravery of her life. In the interview with Jacinda Sanders, she tells this story. When I went to Peru, I climbed Huanapichu, the taller of the two peaks you see when you see Machu Picchu. It's an easy climb for anyone who is okay, you know? I mean, even if you're not in very good shape. But I managed to hurt my knee hiking, I kept saying, this is high enough. This is high enough. Why don't I go back down? I got all the way to the top, crawled through the little cave and got to the top of the mountain and came back down. That's what I mean. It's a good metaphor for writing because there will always come a time in writing a novel, for instance, a long undertaking like that, when you don't think you can do it or you think it's so bad you want to throw it away. I tell the students that there comes a time when you want to either burn it or flush it. But if you keep going, you know, that's what makes you a writer instead of an I wish I was a writer. Octavia says, keep going, listener. Go all the way through. When she started writing, she'd get up at 2 a.m. every morning to write and then went to work in a series of odd jobs, including potato chip inspector, dishwasher, telemarketer. She was writing and submitting short stories and getting rejections when she decided to write a novel instead. And this was Patternmaster, purchased by Doubleday and published in 1976. Patternmaster became the first in the Patternist trilogy, which is actually the last in the timeline of the world of the Patternist stories. The world of these stories stretches from ancient Egypt into the deep interstellar future. These books think about minds and abilities that are outside the norm, 
that diverge. People who can hear thoughts or see the trace of other times and lives written across a space, or take in knowledge about other bodies and use that information to reshape themselves. People who struggle with their strange other vision and are solitary and outsider with it. She said, I wrote myself in. Since I'm me and I'm here and I'm writing, I can write my own stories and I can write myself in. From all the word witches out there, strange and solitary as they may have been, they call on us to write ourselves in. Write versions of the world where the truth as you know it exists. Write your dreams, write your spells, write to your local newspaper and to your fucking congressman. When you feel powerless, when you can't see your power, write a world where a version of yourself faces the brutality and inequality you see and everything you fear. And with your unique, weird, magical self, you save the world. Words are power. Use them to call your power back. Octavia wrote herself into the genre she loved and knew needed to go further. And in doing so, she helped conjure whole new modes of making and dreaming. She's an early pillar of Afrofuturism, a kind of hypersigil work, I think, which UCLA defines as a wide-ranging social, political, and artistic movement that dares to imagine a world where African-descended peoples and their cultures play a central role in the creation of that world. Ayanna Jameson is the creator of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. She describes the transformative power of reading Octavia. Someone who includes me in their understanding of the universal, Jameson says. I was like time traveling. Like this is the definition of Afrofuturism, I think. I think Octavia felt that her mother and her grandmother were really the archetypal heroines or heroes that were not being written about that they had real heroics and real survival because they were still here. She's saying, I think that the past is not past, that it's present, and everything happening in the present is simultaneously rooted in the past. It's not like you can erase one. She knew that she needed to write it, and there was something really pressing on her soul to get it done. Afrofuturism is time traveling. The past is not past. It presses on our souls to take its meaning and rootedness in the present for the future. Listener, what past is pressing on you? The cornerstone of Earthseed is, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. She believes in shaping change, understanding that you are changed too, adapting and crafting with the change potential in the world. Adrian Marie Brown says, I found myself over the years returning to this quote over and over. It helps me so much when change comes and it's unexpected, and especially when change comes and it's undesired. Adrian Marie is a Butler scholar who co-hosts a podcast called Octavia's Parables, which we talked about a bit last episode. And she co-edited this book of stories called Octavia's Brood, helping to nurture the seedlings in Octavia's work by asking activists to write visionary fiction in Octavia's honor, making the relay, as Haraway puts it, between activism and imagination work, because both can feel disheartened without the other. But together, 
activism and a visionary poetics can offer revelatory joy, a sense of power, as we'll see in our next episode. This is one of the real faces of alchemy, of magic, of powerful fucking witchcraft. Octavia channeled with an urgency both in the dark possibilities of things she saw coming and of the other things she saw too, our way through. Ayanna Jameson says, there are always these little kernels of hope in her writing, always this open-ended possibility that even if things look bleak right where we're standing, it's not magically all going to get better, but we're still going to be together. And we can still choose our family, our loved ones. We can still choose to do things that will add to our collective survival instead of just whatever is supposed to be our individual bounty, the things we've acquired and the things we have amassed. That there is another way to be in this world. There is another way to be, and we can choose it. It doesn't just happen magically, but that choice, every time we make it, is magic. Magic in the way it resounds. Choosing collective survival, collective care, is the subtle craft that weaves the past to the future. Earthseed says, embrace diversity. Unite or be divided. Robbed, ruled, killed by those who see you as prey. Embrace diversity. Or be destroyed. Embrace diversity. Or be destroyed. Embrace diversity. Or be destroyed. I deal with all these people that think that they're reasonable people and they're completely not. So I like to do these little check-ins like, am I a reasonable person? Do I do, do I create my own narrative of reality at all? Right. Anyway, I've been assured that I'm a reasonable person, so somehow I escaped. But that's what also what gaslighting does, right? That up and down ride of not agreeing on reality, acting with a kind of love. And then, and then the discrediting where you're like, wait a minute. Oh, maybe it's me. Maybe I, I, maybe I just need to do more, take on more, do better. I believe yeah, like, yeah, the gaslighting of slavery too, and the subsequent way that the world, the world is systemically gaslighting, right? <sighs> yes. That's my, that's my segue into Octavia Butler, I guess, because yeah. that's part of why. She just describes it from these subtle perspectives where you feel the experience very differently. Like it's in the context of an alien-human relationship, and she can kind of take you through the rage of being colonized by an alien species and having your choice taken away. She's just giving you these different windows and feelings on the control over the truth somehow. Yes. And and I mean that I get I guess we're podcasting now. I don't know where you're gonna cut into this. I don't know either. I maybe we'll have to do an intro, but I just now we're doing it because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's what I wanted to say is that like in this world of fiction that Octavia inhabits, she was like characterized as very shy by all accounts, mm. but obviously not in her writing like not in her work like not shy at all just not shy down not shy at all but 
this notion, like whether we're talking about it from a gaslighting perspective or from this like liberatory nature of fiction is like creating your own reality. And based on my understanding, you know, Octavia deals a lot in these, the space that all we witches, you know, in the, in the center of the binary. And so we can find too with this idea of creating our own narrative. Are we gaslighting the people around us or are we like, like Octavia, are we doing like a visionary fiction of what we wish our world or our lives or ourselves were like? I watched an interview with her where someone was asking her about science fiction and why science fiction or whatever the question was, you know, something like that. And I want to get it right. She said, there are no closed doors. You can go anywhere with it. And I I love this notion being applied to, you know, fiction, but also to witchcraft, to our craft, to the, the cauldron that, you know, is our lives, that there are no closed doors and you can go anywhere with it. And that's why somebody, a visionary person like her would go into this, quote, science fiction, speculative fiction, visionary fiction. Yeah. The stories, I mean, they open doors for what we can do. You mean, you think of any story that's impacted you in your life. What resonates with us, I think, is like that that too is in the world. Like, oh, shit, this experience that I is is outside of my universe is also in the universe. And that is just like a, a shattering of bubbles, you know, and makes this huge wave, I think. And that's part of why... I think that making fiction, making art in a visionary sense, in a sense of a visionary poetics that's so core to Afrofuturism. And that's why everyone felt when the first times you saw images even of Afrofuturism in movies or whatever, that you felt like that wave of like, okay, fuck yes. Like, let's imagine the world from this entire shift. Like, please, let's root it in Africa, in African stories, in Africa and creating of the future. What does that look like? Can you please unclench me from this American nightmare of a vision and just center me somewhere else? Like, make a crack in this reality. Fucking please, you know? Yeah, because the the gaslighting narrative was this notion of savagery, and that that was the word that was pushed: savages, like non-humans, even to animals. And with something like Afrofuturism, like it just blows that away. Mm. It just blows it away. And and we talk about this all the time. Like we we learn about African traditions, not because we necessarily want to take them on or claim them, you know, appropriate them, but because everything that we learn dismantles that lie, that gaslighting lie of white supremacy. And I think that like Octavia has taken this to this whole other level. I love her books so much. Like I love them so much. And I I didn't know that I would because I was afraid of the truths in them, to be totally honest. It's hard to read a story about slavery at any time, you know, or it's hard to read a story about apocalypse or the brutality of these gangs and the just terror of that and how close it brushes with our contemporary reality. But I I was really astonished to find that I didn't just keep going because they were great and I knew I wanted to write about her and understand why she had this electric pulse power with people 
to understand the ideas in them. But then also I just fucking fell in love with the narrator. And so then to hear that she was writing, believing that her mother and her grandmother were archetypal heroes because they were still here. It was like, yes, that's who, that's who's carrying me through. Yes, we like all the final girls who made it to the end of the horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like they are the heroes of these stories. One of her characters goes back in time to periods of slavery. And I think that that's like, um, as much as time travel is this, you know, quote unquote science fiction, I think we all live inside of this. Like that's what PTSD is almost, you know, right. like time traveling back to our our traumas, our bodies return to that moment. Our physicality returns to that moment when we have something like a trauma or PTSD from a trauma. And I think that that's like an, an amazing way to articulate that is to have this character actually go back in time to sort of illustrate trauma stays in our bodies, in our DNA, and certainly informs our culture the society that we live in certainly everything that happened before has led to this moment oh and i heard actually speaking of i heard maybe it was adrian marie brown. brown yeah who said that octavia wrote her series backwards so she would write yes. like the last book and then work backwards to see how she or how the story got to that point and i think that that that's an example of this too like being somewhere and then trying to figure out how we got here yeah yeah i do want to read something and i love again listeners if if you're able um we would love for you to go and like check out uh on youtube or whatever like an interview with octavia butler because her voice is so interesting and as a deep voiced (laughs) woman myself when when you first hear it, it almost sounds like an altered recording. Like I, I, I wasn't looking at the screen, I guess, you know, and and her voice came on and it was like so deep and thoughtful that I thought it had been like somehow digitally adjusted. But that's just how she speaks. So anyway, I'm going to read this quote, but I would love for listeners to go and like hear what Octavia Butler's voice sounded like so they can imagine it in this. This is from uh, Parable of the Talents. Choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to lead by the opportunists who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to ask to be told lies. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. I mean, I feel like there's not a time in the world where this couldn't have been like decreed. It's such amazing and important advice because she's talking about how we choose our leaders. The world she describes or the the sort of social philosophy of Earthseed that's channeled by a teenage girl at first. And the vision is very much like God is change. And then the other piece of it is like humanity needs a vision that unites it. And that vision can be spreading humankind across the stars and changing in the ways that are required by those environments. 
So it's the, it's not that there's this end result, like humans will establish a colony. It's that this lifeness of us, of our earth, is destined to live across other places and to be changed by those places. Yes. I think we have to stop thinking of ourselves humans as evolved and and reframe that as evolving Mm -hmm. you know because that's where we get this sense of superiority we're done we have evolved we are evolved but i'm not done until i've evolved a wingsuit (laughs) (laughs) i'm working on it may may had her coat open she's four the other day at her stroller she was like I'm going to jump, Mom. I've got my wingsuit on. <laughs> I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fly. <laughs> and that, I, I, you know what? And she can it, in the Octavia sense. Uh, this is one of my favorite tidbits about her story is that she saw a movie called Devil Girl from Mars. Yeah. And she thought to herself, like she was a child. She went to a movie theater. She saw this movie. And she thought to herself, I yeah. can do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so she did. And so like she did. That's the kicker for me is like how many of us are like oh I could do better than that but then we don't. You know? But then mm-hmm. we don't. And I think like that is one of the fundamental messages that we get from Octavia that we can filter to the missing witches coven is like if you think you can do better, you can write a better story than that. You can be a better parent than your parents were. I love this. Just because she ended up writing how many, how many novels? Like over a dozen novels, yeah. and like dozens of short stories and yeah, essays. Yeah. Because she like saw a shitty movie and said, I can do better than that. She was and like, then, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this again, it's like, this is like reassuring that we can see something and then that that's the moment that flips some kind of switch and puts us into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's a cascading effect, like Ayanna Jameson and other people, all these writers describe this moment, these Black writers going to the science fiction section, and there's a leading character with an African name. There's a Black woman on the cover. There's a story that combines a history that is resonant and makes sense and is not just this wall of white, of white-centered stories, of white-centered voices, this like choking wall. And then and then they too are like, I can do that. I can do that. I can do better than what this is, you know? Yeah. And the world changes. Yes. Yes. Because of fiction. We live in a world of fake news, you know, like... You're right. Propaganda is another form of fiction. Again, you know, there are good kinds and there are bad kinds. But when we see a visionary like Octavia, who also is like, she hasn't just placed these stories in some faraway planet where we don't talk about what actually happened on the earth. Like she's integrating yeah. our real human history. She described her work as cautionary tales, mm-hmm. you know, but she's like, this. This happened here, and this is where we can get to, or this is what we can try to do. I think fiction that tells the truth about being fiction Mm. is much more powerful in some ways or more honest than, you know, fiction that tries to tell you that it's literal truth. And then it's the action of that fiction, right? The story of the world that tries to tell you it's literal truth is one thing. I mean, everyone, every 
political party is trying to construct a, a vision of the future, all using to tell stories about how we'll then enact regulations, about how we'll then behave to each other. But then the truth comes out in the action, right? And in the action you inspire. Does the way that you set that wave out into the world, both in your regulations and just in how people are lit up by you, does it give birth to violence and brutality and cruelty and deliberate ignorance to bullying? You know, then it's probably an evil story. <laughs> it's a it's a bad fiction, you know. That's like a spell that needs to be disarmed somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure if you said it exactly this way, but this is this is what I'm now looking for is an honest fiction. <laughs> and again, this is one of those. those That's uh, what she does. It's so honest. It's like you're. <sighs> it's just so clear eyed. Yeah. And we love a paradox in which land, of course. So an honest fiction, I think, is is exactly what we need. I both have been, like, just terrified thinking about what the religious right is has been emboldened to, to do in terms of its bullying in the last eight years and decades. She brings that home in, in fiction in a way that is so revealing of what the present is and gives such depth to what the terror of this present moment really is. And then at the same time, it's like, you know, you see religion declining in the United States and people increasingly claiming no religion, that in fact, the rise of the religious right and the brutality of it, its actions tell a story about what kind of fiction it is. And people are saying, no fucking thank you. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> And that's what happened with Anne Rice, right? Like Anne Rice, the the interview with the vampire author, she went through this stage where she claimed Christ and all my writing will be devoted to Christ. And then some years later, she was like, oh, I can't do this. I can't be a part of a religion that is, is homophobic. And that, that was the line for her. She was like, this religion is homophobic and I can't do this anymore, you know? So sometimes it's just like one thing, you know, for me, it was feminism. For me, it was like, I don't understand why there are no women in this. And if they are, they're, they're, you know, side characters or birth givers, you know, no agency. That was the line for me. And for everybody, I think there's going to be a line where it's like, I can't be a part of this anymore. Whether it's a religion or a hate group, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's that line for those people who are there too, that are just like, you know what? I, I can't do this. Yeah, well, right, because eventually people will treat each other like shit. If they have a philosophy that allows them to treat another like shit, to scapegoat another, then eventually someone you thought was safe, you thought you were in a safe bubble, if you are in a context where those are the rules of the road, you will be treated like shit. Yeah. You will be broken. You will be hurt. Your rights will be taken away because there is no fundamental protection of rights. Your partner will be raped. Your children will be abused. Your children will be exposed to ideas that you didn't control. They'll be terrified. It comes for us all once that's the rhetoric because that rhetoric is infinitely multiplying until we stop it with care. Yes. And stopping it with care. Sometimes I see these people and they're like, you know, dressed up in the rebel flag and and they're 
they're white supremacists and, and and they don't look like happy people who should be an exemplar of what supremacy looks like. And sometimes I just look at these pictures or whatever and I think to myself, like, how sad mm-hmm. that the only self-worth you can conjure is when you decide that you as a whole as a group are better than another group you know whether that's a different religion a different sexual orientation a different race like imagine if the only place that you could get your self-worth was from thinking that you're better than somebody else for nothing that you've accomplished just the nature of your birth i'm it makes me sad it makes me think like i wish you if you loved any part of yourself you would see that this is sad and ridiculous and you would stop yeah stop being so ridiculous (laughs) white supremacist so dumb stop stop i mean i can't again we we exist in our coven bubble. I can't imagine, honestly, that there are any white supremacists who are even listening to this podcast right now. No. <laughs> I imagine that they're probably avoiding it. If you're like teetering on the edge of white supremacy, <laughs> you're probably not like Googling missing witches. Yeah. And then, and then listeners join us in just hearing us all go, fucking stop. Uh, this is a fiction that is not visionary. Let's say that. The fiction of white supremacy is not an honest fiction. It is not a visionary fiction. It has no use in the world, but it does have consequences. It has no use, but it certainly has fucking consequences. And again, these are the fictions that sometimes create the world that we live in. And I'm just so glad that we have someone like Octavia who saw something that was not good and said, I can do better. And then did it. People are discovering and discovering. I think about Zora Neale Hurston, who again, like died penniless with some acclaim, but like not as much as she would go on to garner after her death. And this is the real work of visionaries is to to create something that outlives them, you know? Yeah. Kindred, her novel where the Black woman narrator in the present, which is like a present in like the 80s i want to say is just snapped back into time snapped back into this role where she is herself and has to try to keep a white violent slave owner alive because she realizes he is her ancestor so for her to be born she's she's snapped back every time his life is threatened and she has to choose whether she saves him or not And then she's stuck there and it's fucking a nightmare, right? And so you're in this body getting yanked back and forth and the narrator's incredible and the writer's incredible description and ability to put you there. And that book is now read in schools all across the United States. And I mean, put it on your reading list. Mm -hmm. It's not there already, teachers and everyone. But just that, I love to imagine that she could feel that wave coming all of those readers all of those minds being put into these bodies to understand the choices that her grandmother and her line her family had to make to survive under under these just like gaslighting body breaking conditions if we were to get rid of every bad thing that ever happened to us we would no longer be who we are So we have to evolve from that place, knowing that 
everything that happened led to our existence not just the joy but everything that has ever happened has led to our existence and we have to contend with that any closing messages i think you know look for an honest fiction and a visionary fiction not a fiction of hate choose not only your leaders but make all your choices with wisdom and forethought if you can allow your imagination to exist outside of reality because that's what a visionary does so be it see to it as she writes yeah. <laughs> yeah. so be it so see be it. it see to it and blessed fucking be <laughs> blessed fucking be <laughs> oh we never talked about libraries thank god for libraries thank you librarians we love you. We want you to be funded. And we want people to go and use their libraries. These are public spaces. You use know? your library services. They want you to. They want you to use Libby. Take out the tools. Take out the toys. Just come to use the internet. We don't have any fucking public space. So <laughs> go to your libraries. <laughs> and it's it's like one of the few places in the world where there's no expectation that you spend money. Yeah. At, at all. Exactly. And what uh, what other closing thoughts do we have? I'm I'm just here to yell about public space now. <laughs> I don't even remember what this episode's about. But public space and Octavia Butler. God damn, I love her so much. Go read all her books. And yeah, just listen to the interviews. Let her voice shudder through you with its power. She's oh. so her, oh, her speaking voice is so bad. That's if I can be. You must be a witch. The Missing Witches podcast is created by Risa Dickens and Amy Torok with insight and support from the coven at patreon.com slash missingwitches. Amy and Risa are the co-authors of Missing Witches, Reclaiming True Histories of Feminist Magic, which is available now wherever you get your books or audiobooks, and of New Moon Magic, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Reenchantment coming fall 2023.